I've been having a, I don't know what you'd call it, a bit of an 80s flashback. Any, anybody else an 80s person here? I don't, I don't know why. Uh, we have one of those wonderful Alexa devices from Amazon in the house. I know Dave K. knows about that. We, uh, so I just, out of the blue, said, Alexa, play 80s hits. And I'm telling you, it was good stuff. It started out with Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I'm like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Uh, then we had a couple of old Bon Jovi hits, Living on a pr- Oh. Okay. Bon Jovi uh, hits, Living on a Prayer, and I forget the other one. Um, let's see. Uh, sad to say, at the time, one of my favorite artists, am I allowed to say this in church, was Prince. So a few of his hits came on, and that was good, and and, uh, you know, it's good. I, 80s were an interesting time to be a kid. Caroline's like, how do you know all these songs, Dad? You're not even a music person. I'm like, well, you know. At the time, it was good. One of my f- other favorite 80s memories, let's see if anybody remembers this. Do you watch American Gladiators? Anyone? Anyone? Not too many. American Gladiators, you know, where, like, those uh, regular old citizens that thought they were, you know, kind of buff went up against these athletes. And I had a variety of competitions. My, one of my favorite was always, I don't know what they called it, but the, the device is called the pugil stick, where basically you have a real big Q-tip in your hand. And you stand on these platforms, and you have to knock the other person off. You remember that? Yeah, that was it. I always, I always thought that was fun. In fact, a few years back, we went to Canada on a mission trip and had a big block party there. And they rented for that mission trip one of those devices, one of those, uh, you know, blow-up things with the platforms on it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. I can relive. I can feel like what it was to fight the gladiators. Caroline, get up there. <laughs> you know, pick, your, pick, your, um, pick your opponents well. And she did. And I, I think I knocked her off, or I don't know, I might have been kind, because let's see, how many years ago was that and how old was she at the time, nonetheless. But, but that was fun. We had a good time with, with that. I don't know why that kind of that nostalgia comes back. But one of the things about that particular challenge, that particular competition, uh, it's really a a lot about balance. It's about making sure that when you get on that platform, which isn't exactly stable, it's got a little wiggle to it, at least the one that we were on, and even on the television show, that platform didn't didn't seem perfectly stable. You have to kind of set your feet, and and if you've ever watched those, or if you've ever done that, you notice that you get in trouble the minute you get uncertain. You know, you, you, you maybe feel like you're off balance a little bit, and you begin to move your feet. And as soon as you have a little bit of uncertainty, as soon as you have a little bit of movement in your feet, that starts the ball rolling. And before you know it, you are off balance and probably off the platform, and the other person wins, right? Anybody else done that little pugil stick thing? Guess I'm the only one. Okay, Mark, thank you. A couple of you, yeah, that's fun. But, but that's the thing, you know, you just really you have to be careful when you get up there. You, you need to plant your feet. We, we, uh, we know that. Now, now, we've been talking about this idea in some ways of balance. We've been talking about maybe particularly planting our feet. The series we've been in for the last uh, month or so is, called, is, ta- is based upon that psalm verse, Be still and know that I am God. And we have talked for three weeks. Uh, last week we had our guests here musically, but the three weeks prior to that, we talked about that from the perspective of sometimes it's important to be still before God and to understand that He is God, 
that he is awesome and he is wonderful and he is powerful. And that's, that's one aspect. Today I want to look at kind of the other side of that. And that is sometimes it's not about what we're doing and who we are, but it's, what about, it's about what he is doing. Not just about who he is, but about what he is up to in our lives. We're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We have some tucked under the seats there. We're also going to throw most of the verses up on the screen. Exodus chapter 14. Let me set the context for you so you see we're going to kind of jump in in the middle of the story. Exodus tells the, the story, gives the account historically of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. It is based around, or the key character in that story, beyond God, is Moses. From the very beginning of that book, he is saved uh, when he was a baby by being put in the river, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up with all the privileges of Pharaoh's household, uh, adopted in there and given all of that, until at some point in his life he recognizes that he is not an Egyptian, he's more akin in some ways to the Israelites that are the slaves, and he steps in and breaks up a fight to the point where he actually kills an Egyptian who is in a, in a conflict with an Israelite. That instance sends him fleeing. He takes off running as far as he can get from God, and even though he thinks, or as far as he can get from Egypt, but he's not too far from God, and God finds him there and says to him, Moses, I'm going to send you back in that burning bush experience. He calls to him from the bush, sends him back to Egypt, and gives him the privilege of appearing before Pharaoh with his brother Aaron as kind of his mouthpiece to liberate the children of Israel through a, a series of ten plagues culminating in the most devastating of all the death of the firstborn out of which the Passover celebration comes and out of which our Lord's Supper comes. Pharaoh finally relents, lets the children of Israel go. In fact, so anxious to get rid of them, they give them stuff. They basically loot the whole camp of the Egyptians because of the devastation of this last plague. And they have fled. They've headed out away from Egypt when Pharaoh says, wait a minute, cheap labor is good labor. Free labor is better labor. Go get those guys. He sets his army off after the children of Israel to try to bring them back, which is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. It says this, as Pharaoh, approached the Israel, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. You only need to be still. Remarkable instruction from God in that context through Moses, the leader. Now, a lot of things jump out at me in this passage. We'll just kind of look really primarily today at Moses' sort of instructions to Israel. And he, and he gives them 
I guess you could look at it in the way of like three things that they should do. Number one, what we hear a lot in Scripture, do not be afraid. That's in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. I, I read it once. I haven't checked this out. I haven't checked this out, so we'll have to maybe do that on your own. But I believe I read somewhere that over 300 times, close to one a day, the Bible says, do not be afraid. you know why that is? Because we're chickens. <laughs> it's the Baptist bird, after all. We can allow fear to kind of just come up and cripple us. Moses says, do not be afraid because the people were, any guesses? Afraid, naturally. They were overwhelmed by this. It's remarkable to read what they, what they said even. Good point. But what they say here is, was it because there were no graves in Egypt? Like, okay, that's why we needed to come out here. All the cemeteries were full. My, my favorite is verse 12. Didn't we say to you in Egypt... Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. I don't remember reading that in the first 13 chapters of Exodus. I don't remember anywhere when Moses shows up that the Israelites go, you know what, Moses, thanks for coming. Appreciate your time and effort, but we're pretty happy here as slaves in Egypt. If you could just leave us alone, we'll be fine. No, we don't see that, but in that moment, and I've been the same way, you probably have too, when, when the pressure goes up, we begin to think and feel all sorts of things that we never have before. Anybody, well, let's not say that. Let's ask this. Anybody flown before? Anybody flown before? Yes. Anybody afraid to fly? few of us, yes. You know, they tell me, when you're on the plane and in turbulence, you always have the person nearby that wants to offer this little tidbit of advice. You know, you're more likely to be killed in a car accident than if you're flying on a plane. And I want to say, but the problem is I'm on a plane. And it feels like it's about to fall out of the sky, right? We, I mean, you know that. There are some things that, that at the moment, in the, the statistics don't matter. The data doesn't matter. Those particular things that might offer reassurance because that, that fear within us sort of rises up and overwhelms any rational thought even at times. And, and for the Israelites, they're in a really bad place because, you know, a lot of times we, we look psychologically um, when those moments are that fear comes up, they say you have that fight or flight reaction that you're either going to kind of just come out swinging or you're going to just run away. But the problem with Israel is they can't do either one. Their enemy of Pharaoh's army is behind them, so they can't run that way. And in front of them is this huge body of water, the Red Sea. They can't go that way. They can't flee, and the fight would be ridiculous. They've been slaves for hundreds of years, even though they've looted some things from, from Egypt. The Egyptian army is well-equipped. There's no way they could stand up for them. And so when you can't fight and you can't flight, the only thing left it seems like they had to do was panic. And they did. And they come up with all these things in their mind, all these ways of thinking. That fear just sort of rises up. Um, I remember when I was... Uh, Senior in high school, Disney has this thing. May still do they still have grad night? No, they used to. Anyway, basically, seniors got to go to Disney for like a nighttime thing. It was a big deal. We weren't that far from Disney, less than an hour by bus, and um, we were gonna go. And uh, it's it's one of those things where kind of a, a pretty cool trip at the time. It was a big deal, and and so 
I thought, here's my chance. I can ask that young lady to go to grad night. Because I thought, even if she doesn't want to go with me, at least she wants to go. So that's half the battle, right? And so there we went. I asked her, and she said yes, and it was wonderful, and I was all nervous. And back in that time, you had to kind of dress up. You just couldn't go in your shorts and T-shirts. They wanted you to look the part. So you had to dress a little bit, and I did. And I thought, you know, of course, because I'm taking this young lady with me, I dressed you know, like I really have to kick my game up a notch. I didn't really have much game, <laughs> but, but whatever that was, I kicked it up. I don't know what that looks like, but we went, and, and she turns out, one of her favorite rides, it was a newer ride at Disney at the time, was Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I had a long-standing life principle of not riding roller coasters. And into that moment, I had to make a decision. Do I tell this young lady, who I was trying to impress, that no, in fact, I am a big chicken, and I do not want to ride your favorite ride at Disney, or do I get on that stupid ride to try to impress her? You know what they do on that ride? I didn't know it at the time. They take your picture on that ride. <laughs> and so we rode it, and I was scared to death. I, I have never held on so hard to anything in my life as I did the rail in front. I mean, I... I was like, oh, I don't think I can let go. But fi- yeah, they actually pulled, pried my fingers off and said, sir, you have to get off now. Actually, they said, You're after, if you don't get off, you have to ride again. I'm like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> no. But I was trying, you know, actually it wasn't that bad because I wanted to be smooth. I wanted to be, you know, play it cool and say, oh, that was fun. That was good. I had to, and then you walk through that room and there's my picture. <laughs> and the illusion that I was brave and enjoyed the ride tremendously was shattered. Shattered, shattered, shattered. And so... That was the first and only date with that young lady, (laughs) but that's another story for another day. You know, I mean, fear, we want to rationalize, we want to tell ourselves, hundreds of people have ridden this, surely I can do it, or or I even timed on on the way, I'm like, okay, how long is this? That car left, oh, it's not even out there three minutes, it's only like two minutes and ten seconds, I can do anything for two minutes, wrong, just not going to happen. Fear has that effect on us. And the children of Israel, in this moment, let fear well up. And it was going to thwart the very deliverance of God. They had forgotten in that short amount of time, miracle after miracle that God had done on their behalf. And they were ready to throw it all away. They were, forget God delivering us, just send us back to Egypt. That's what we really want. And that's our temptation at times, when fear begins to get the best of us we can begin to take those steps backwards, away from where God would have us, away from where God was leading us because the future looks uncertain and the next step seems so difficult. We can retreat. And thankfully for Israel, Moses was there and he could speak to them with God's authority. And when when he When they were afraid, he could say, do not be afraid. But not only that did he say next, do not be afraid, stand firm. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. That was his instruction. One is an emotional appeal. It's don't let fear get the best of you. The other is is more of an action, something to do. Now, Now, we often think standing firm, or as we've used the phrase this series, being still, is not, in fact, doing anything. We often think that that's the opposite of doing something. 
we live in a world that, that kind of pushes us to stay busy and pushes us to do things. If you're not, there's a phrase that you may have heard, if you're not growing, you're dying. Or if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. These are the, the mantras that we've been told in our world. These are the things that we can buy into that convince us that we just have to keep moving for the sake of moving. And the Israelites in that moment got the opposite advice. As Moses spoke in God's authority, he said, no, don't keep moving for the sake of moving. Stand firm. Plant your feet. Stay right where you are. Now, we can see also in that the difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction in our lives is often fueled by, well, biblically we say by the flesh, by that natural side of us that doesn't always follow God. Reactions often are just somewhere between instinctual and, and emotional. That they just are what we do when confronted with something. And the natural reaction, as we've already talked about, that fight or flight response, those sorts of things, we, we, we can't do them. Instead, we have to respond to these situations. And Moses responded. And the difference between a reaction and a response is a response is that which is motivated by the Spirit of God leading us. And Moses says to the people, here's God's instruction. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you cannot react to this situation, but you can respond to it. You can stand firm. In fact, there's a, there's a passage in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6 that's interesting. It's the one that talks about the armor of God. Spiritual warfare often is the phrase we use for that. And we know those things. In fact, I could ask some of our teens. I know they've studied that and our, our, our young folks. What is the armor of God? Six pieces of the armor of God that, that we're supposed to put on. I don't know if I have them in order, but we put on the helmet of salvation. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have uh, the belt of truth our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which we are able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy, and we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We look at those, those pieces of armor, those things that we're given. And when we think of warfare, we often think of, oh, it's time to attack. But when you go to Ephesians 6, here's something interesting. As Before Paul lists those particular pieces of armor, he says something three or four times in the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 6, verse 10. This is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. We know that's coming. We've just talked about those pieces of it. And then what he say? Put on the full armor of God so that you can what? Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And listen to verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, what are you supposed to do? To stand. And then verse 14, the first three words. Stand firm then. Do you get the impression that stand is an important word in that passage? It's, a, it's kind of the key word. It's repeated in those three verses, three and a half verses. Stand firm. Stand firm then. Put on the full honor of God. That, that's the idea to stand. And we think in, in our mind that, that that's a passive response, just to stand there. But in this, 
instance, in, in Moses' instruction to Israel and in Paul's instruction to us as the church, the idea of standing still in faith is absolutely doing something. It's planting your feet. It's holding on to the hope that you have. It's reminding yourself that the ground upon which you have made placed your faith is secure, that, that what we stand on isn't that, that wobbly platform like with the pugil stick, but it is the rock the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself, the only foundation that can be laid. When we place our feet firmly upon him, that's a good place just to stand, just to rest, to take your stand in him. And that's what happens there. I think about a couple of Old Testament individuals. Uh, David has some mighty men, mighty men of valor. There's various, there's three main ones. I want to talk about two of them. One of them is Eleazar. Eleazar, one of the, the episodes in his life, one of the things that, that he's sort of, I don't know, famous for, but known for, is he goes to battle. And he fights and fights and fights until he can't fight anymore. He is overwhelmed with fatigue. And Scripture says he's so fatigued that when the battle is over, he can't let go of his sword. His hand has so cramped around the handle of his sword that they have to pry his fingers off of it so that he can let it go. And I think when I read that, how much should we as God's people hold on to that sword? Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that we would hold on so that you know, nothing will allow it to come out of our hands as Eleazar held on to that sword in the midst of overwhelming fatigue and tiredness. He stood and fought for God even to the end. And then another of David's mighty men is Shema. And his kind of famous thing is he goes out, well, Kind of odd, into a lentil field. It's Old Testament. Jews, lentils, right? Goes together, maybe, you think? I don't know. He's out in a lentil field because the king's lentil field and the whole army of the Philistines coming against him. The whole army, over 800 of them. He alone stands in that field and defends it against the army of the Philistines, killing over 800 men over what seems like something insignificant. It's just a lentil field. It's just a, a bean field. But for, for him, for Shema, he was representing his king. And if that's his king's lentil field, it's worth fighting for. If that was David's, he would risk his life. He would stand in that field and repel the enemy. And I think that's the same thing Moses would say to the Israelites. Stand firm then. Don't be afraid, but stand firm. It's the same thing Paul would say to those uh, who fight spiritual battles. Stand firm then. And when you've done everything else, stand. Because you've got something worth standing for and you've got something solid to stand on. Moses' instructions to Israel wasn't just don't be afraid, don't let that get the best of you, but it was to stand firm in the face of what was coming because that is sometimes the most important thing, the most active thing, the best thing you can do is to stand there. As we see what else happens here, one of the things that we see that Moses tells the children of Israel to stand firm was is the third instruction he gives them, not only to not be afraid, not only to stand firm, but also verse 13 of Exodus chapter 14 again, so that you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch what God does for you. See, we, we, like to, we like to work. We like to do. We like to be busy. 
We've talked about this in other contexts, our to-do list, our schedule, our appointment books, however it looks. Some times of year are more important, more packed for some of us than others. Those periods of time where we don't feel like we can catch our breath because there's always something to do. And sometimes in, in church world, in our faith, we get that same kind of mentality. I've got to do something. I can't just stop. I can't just stand. I've got I to be active. I've got to move forward. Maybe particularly when the pressure begins to mount, when life begins to kind of squeeze you a little bit, when there's difficulty, when there's struggle, when there's an enemy behind you, when there's an obstacle in front of you, much like Israel faced the Pharaoh's army closing in, the Red Sea in front of them, you think, I've got to do something. I've got to look for a way out. I've got to find that key. I understand locally there's like a new thing called the escape room. Has anybody done that? Curious, curious, curious. Was it, was it good? Not this one, but you've done one. Anybody done an escape room anywhere? Just you guys. Was it fun? Did you get out in under an hour? Once? So you've done it multiple times. I see an outing coming, you know. <laughs> the, the point of the escape room is, is you get in there, and there's, there's clues. There's puzzles that you have to solve, and, and there's clues hidden in the room, and there's ways you have to kind of put the puzzle together. There's some things like that, I think, online, different apps you can play. Similar idea. But the point is you get kind of locked in there, and I read it was in the newspaper. Did you see it a few weeks ago? It was a reporter of Free Press. You start here with your, I think you're chained by your ankles to the wall. Who wants to go? Yeah, right. No thanks. And then you have to solve a series of puzzles to get out. And that's, that's how we work. In our lives, that's kind of how it is. Whether it's this kind of fun activity of an escape room or whether it's in your business and there's, there's a deadline coming or there's a problem that comes up whether it's in your, your personal life and there's struggle that's coming on, too often we think we've got to scramble, we've got to look for the clue, we've got to find that, that minutest of hints that will push us to the right decision, that will unlock the next thing and will get us to the next step. And Moses says to the children of Israel, when they would have been, on the one hand, if they weren't paralyzed in fear, probably desperate to do anything to try to get out of this, he says, just stand there because this one isn't about you. This one's not about what you can do. This one's not about your skills. It's not about your ability. It's not about your ingenuity. It's not about how you're going to solve this impossible situation. No, this one is about what God is going to do on your behalf. There's a psalm that says this, Call upon me in your day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. It's a great promise of God that when you find trouble sometimes the best thing you can do is stop put your feet on the solid rock that is your faith in Jesus Christ and say okay God I don't know what to do I can't anymore I'm at the end of my ability I'm at the end of my ingenuity God I have to the best of my knowledge to this point moved in the direction you have moved me I have obeyed in the way in the things you have called me so I'm going to have to trust you in this moment, to do what only you can do. I think about Jesus. He, he, um, he had a few advantages, being the second person of the Trinity, God that became flesh, I know. But I think about him toward the end when he's in the garden praying and toward the cross as he's enduring that. One of the things that the Bible says is that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, which is a remarkable thing to think about. But 
in the garden, what did he pray? Jesus is knowing, because he's God, he has that great advantage of understanding what's next, knowing that this thing that he was born for, this moment in history that would change everything for you and I was coming. He knew the agony that awaited him, and I think the agony wasn't merely the physical agony, but the agony of bearing the weight of the sin of the world that he expressed in the cross when he quoted Psalm 22 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, in feeling that weight, he would cry out to God, If there's any way, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in some way of thinking, as he looked at the situation around him, maybe would have, the natural inclination we would have had is, can I negotiate my way out of this? Can I buy my way out of this? Can I, can I sneak my way out of this? And no, Jesus said, you know what, God, if this is your will, I'm content to stand right here. Knowing what's coming and not understanding how it can work, I'll stand. Stand firm on what you have called me to do and allow you, at this point, to do what only you can do. And boy, did God deliver. Yes, Jesus went to the cross. Yes, he bore physically the scars that were the sign of the physical agony he endured. But on the third day, when the ladies early in the morning went to the tomb, they saw the stone had been rolled away. Because God did what only God could do and secured for us our salvation. See what God is going to do for you. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about in that passage his own weakness, his physical thorn in the flesh, as he calls it. Three times he asked God, please, if there's any way you could take this away from me, that would be awesome. And then the answer comes back. For 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, I think this... Scripture is going to be up on the wall. But he said to me, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And notice what Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. When you go to the Everglades, if you've been there, you know at the first place, uh, Hinga Trail is one of the main places you pull up certain times a year, they have a bin with tarps there and bungees. Why do they do that? If you've ever been, you know that the, uh, the vultures like to hang out there certain times a year. There are tons, I don't know if literally tons, but there are a lot of vultures. They'll be sitting on top of the, the building. They'll be all around. And apparently, what is terribly tasty to a vulture is the rubber on your car, around your windows, in different places. And so you get these tarps, you put it over your car, you strap it down so that the vultures can't get to those tasty parts of your car. I don't know if you've ever tried the rubber on your car. Apparently it's a delight. <laughs> I guess in vulture world, they don't get out much. And so you do that. But here's the thing. I have driven into the Everglades 
We have driven all the way to Flamingo, which just seems like a thousand miles from when you first get on that road. Isn't that the longest road in the world? Why is that? You're, you're driving and it says Flamingo, 34 miles. And you drive 45 minutes and it says Flamingo, 32 miles. And you're like, how does that happen? Am I the only one that feels that way? I can't be. Anyway, so we've driven all the way. You know what I've discovered? When you're moving, the vultures can't land on your car. You don't have to worry about them getting there and chewing away the rubber on, around your, your windows or on your windshield wipers or whatever other places they gnaw on. As long as you're moving, they can't land. They can't perch. Now, it's probably a really bad example. <laughs> when we, but, but I think about this verse Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, sometimes the, I, I use that picture because in our desire to keep moving, and to do something for the sake sometimes of just doing something because we don't want to just stand there. Our movement, maybe that's what prohibits the power of God from resting on us. Did you notice the end of that verse? Therefore I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest on me. See, we like to say we've got to cover up our weaknesses. We, got, we, have, to, we have to compensate for them. If you're Maybe it's that job interview question. Tell me what your greatest weakness is. And, you know, you've probably seen or read the coaching of how to answer those things, to be honest, but pivot a little bit and make sure you kind of have a positive thing to to recognize your weakness and show ways you're working on it. And, and in, in church world, maybe not church world, let's say in a relationship to God, God doesn't want you to cover your weaknesses. God doesn't want you to say, oh, don't worry about that guy, I got this. No, God wants you to admit, to boast in your weaknesses. Why? Because for Paul, God reminded him, God's strength is made perfect in your weakness. The, as long as you're trying to be strong, the power of Christ, the strength of God, is thwarted in your life. As long as you're moving, as long as you're trying to say, I got this, God, don't worry. God, I know you're busy. There's a lot going on in the world. My little thing doesn't matter. The more we do that, the less likely we are to see God show up in our lives. Because Moses ends this, this passage that we read earlier, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. God will fight for you. Just be still. Quit swinging. Quit struggling. Just be still. Interestingly enough, we didn't put this on the screen, but the next thing that happens, I'll just read it for you because I think it's fascinating. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. find that fascinating. Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See what God's going to do. And as they stood still and allowed God to fight for him, then when the time was right, what does God say? Move. Doesn't mean you're going to stay there forever. Doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Just means for now, stand still. And God will tell you when to move, but you get to move. It's not a permanent address. It's not a permanent location. God will move you. But you want to move when he says and how he says and where he says instead of trying to figure it out on your own. See, being still, being quiet, getting alone with God, vitally important. It's what we've talked about for the previous three weeks in this, in this, in this series of, of understanding in our fast-paced world, sometimes the noise of life drowns out the voice of God. 
But that's not the only be still. Sometimes we need to be still to give God the chance to fight for us, to, to say to us, it's time to move on. It's time to move forward. Now you can go. You know, we've talked about in passing about what Jesus did for us and we've talked about the Passover which was that tenth plague that is represented by the Passover festival that the, the Jewish people celebrate still to this day and is the out of which comes what we call the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's any accident that Jesus connects so directly with his disciples what he's about to do on the cross with what God did in history. If you know God's salvation for them was be still and watch him fight for you, and God's salvation for us is kind of the same thing. It's like, stand there, be still, stand firm, because God has fought the battle on your behalf. He went to the cross for my sin and for yours. His body was broken and his blood shed so that we could be restored to right relationship with God, not based on anything we do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of works. It's not of anything you could do because God doesn't want you to boast about it. And so we come now to this observance of the supper, this reminder of the deliverance of God that takes us back to the Exodus in the Old Testament and takes us to the foot of the cross in the New Testament and reminds us that it is God who has fought for us, who has secured for us victory, who has done what only he can do. And in these moments, we're going to be still. We're going to remember what he has done. In fact, by taking the elements, the Bible says not only do we remember, we, we proclaim his death until he comes again.